This is the In Common Podcast. Hi everyone, this is Michael. In this episode, I spoke with Sarah Miro, an assistant professor at the School of Geographical Sciences and Urban Planning at Arizona State University. Sarah is an interdisciplinary social ecological systems scientist who focuses on urban geography and planning. Sarah recently wrote a paper entitled Urban Resilience for Whom, What, When, Where, and Why. And I asked her about her view on the concept of resilience, its role in science, and its application to urban systems. We also spoke about another paper of Sarah's entitled The Politics of Multifunctional Green Infrastructure. During our conversation, she described a decision support tool that she has developed to help practitioners prioritize different neighborhoods for green infrastructure development and change. We spoke as well about her observations that many green infrastructure projects focus largely on biophysical interventions to deal with stormwater-related sewage overflows, rather than on broader environmental and social issues such as heat and pollution. An underlying theme throughout our conversation was the importance of the multiple functions played by green infrastructure. And actually before you, so you went to uh, the School of Natural Resources and Environment at, at University of Michigan Ann Arbor, right? Yep. Did you know JT Erbaugh while you were there? Yeah, yeah, very, yes, definitely. I actually, he was my roommate. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so you, you yeah, knew him a little bit. Yeah, I lived in a house. Um, he was, yeah, he lived in uh, a house with me and like three other people for a year. And yeah, he's a good friend. Yep. Okay, so he's a postdoc here at Dartmouth. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So I'm like, we're we're friends with him and his wife, Talia. I know Talia too. Yep. I know their dog. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Zeb. <laughs> Is it Zeb? Is that how you say it? I forget. Yeah, yeah. Zeb. Yep. Zeb, yep. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's a cutie. He's like quite, quite sweet. Um, okay. So could you talk to me a little bit just to get started? Like what led you to want to get the PhD in that school? I mean, it's one of these interesting uh, interdisciplinary environmental schools that you kind of hear about. It's got one of the bigger names along with like Duke and Yale. You kind of hear Michigan thrown in there as mm -hmm. well. Like what attracted you to that space? Yeah, so, well, so I kind of had always, I guess, been a little bit of like an inter, well, honestly, interdisciplinary, but I was always interested in like multiple social science disciplines, right? Like going back to my, my bachelor's, well, I did my, I double majored in history and political science, but I also minored in anthropology, had like a public policy minor as well. So I took like basically as many social science classes as I could um, in lots of different different disciplines. So I think, yeah, I was always interested in, in multiple social science perspectives and kind of trying to think, think about them and combine them. Um, but then I did my master's at the University of Amsterdam and that was in a uh, department that was human geography planning and international development. And the program itself in international development was inherently interdisciplinary. Um, and so I think that was my first introduction to really like true interdisciplinary research and work, right? Um, and I, I liked it. I was also, that's where I first um, was introduced to the concept of, of urban resilience. Um, and, you know, it was really clear as soon as, you know, I started reading about it that it was interdisciplinary and, and that if we're really gonna think, you know, about, think holistically about 
urban systems and urban resilience or even urban sustainability, you have to combine different disciplines, right? You can't tackle things like energy, uh, the energy sector and try to make it more resilient without combining, you know, engineering, governance. Um, yeah, I mean, just cities are, are super complex and, and require different disciplines. And so I think for me, actually, when I was looking at PhD programs, the interdisciplinary ones were really appealing because I felt like I would be able to to draw on the different perspectives and take classes in different fields that I felt like were gonna be relevant to the kinds of questions that I wanted to ask and the topics that I wanted to work on. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I actually did apply to a, a mixture of programs. So I did apply to a few urban planning programs some public policy, and then some of these interdisciplinary environmental programs. And so ultimately choosing Michigan, it was kind of a combination of factors of that, um, yeah, again, liked the interdisciplinarity and I felt like the advisor, so my advisor there was, was Josh Newell. I felt like he was gonna be a really good fit. There were other folks at Michigan who were, um, you know, who I felt like I could really work with and just um, seemed like a, a great program. And then of course, the nice thing too at Michigan was there were lots of other programs that again, other disciplines there that were also really strong programs, right? So like I took a lot of classes in urban planning, had an urban planner on my committee, you know, worked with other urban planning folks. So I felt like that was something that I could draw on even though I wasn't specifically in the urban planning program. I think I actually took all but one of the required urban planning PhD classes while I was there, right? So, oh, wow. so I think okay. that was another, another attraction too to Michigan was that there were, you know, most graduate programs there are pretty strong. Okay, so that gets me to one of the first questions I know I wanted to ask you, which is why cities? You mentioned, so you got interested in it maybe in Amsterdam, but are you from a city? Like, where does that interest come from? <laughs> That's a great question. So I did, I grew up in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So I grew up in a big, you know, urban, suburban kind of mega region of Southeast Florida. Um, I also, we also traveled a decent amount. So. Um, so I, my family, well, my dad was a botanist. Um, and so I actually, uh, we did a sabbatical when I was young and lived in London for six months or my dad did a sabbatical. Um, and I think that was, you know, a really interesting experience. My, uh, my dad is, uh, was originally from, we grew up in New York city. So we used to go there to visit my grandparents. Um, I was, and I just was always really fascinated by cities. I loved being in them. I felt like very energized. I still do um, when I go to cities. So I think that was always really interesting and it was always struck by how different different cities are, right? So, you know, South Florida looks so different to, uh, than New York City, which looks so different than London or, you know, and I think just thinking about, you know, as somebody who has always really been fascinated by history, thinking about how history shapes cities um, and, you know, the, the different pathways that ultimately led them to be, you know, the, have the form they are today. Um, so I think that was part of it. I feel like there was maybe a little bit of, of my own sort of rebellion because my parents were both biologists and botanists. Uh, they really loved nature. They were actually not big fans of, of cities. Um, and, and for example, I remember we went um, to, to Paris uh, as part of like a traveling around, around Europe and we were supposed to stay there for several days. I was really excited to you know go to different museums, explore the city. And my parents just couldn't wait to get out. <laughs> um, we ended up leaving early. They wanted to go out, go out to the mountains, um, into nature. So I think in some ways it was a slight rebellion of, okay, I'm gonna, you know, focus on cities and, and people. So, you know, I was really into politics and uh, social sciences. And I mean, 
I guess in some ways they kind of got the last laugh there since now I spend a lot of my time thinking about <laughs> nature and vegetation in cities. In cities, um, yeah. Working with urban ecologists, but but yeah, perhaps perhaps a little bit of that as well. Yeah, yeah. My uh, I'm my father is an academic, and uh, I go back and forth about how much uh, of me is in him and et cetera, and like why am I doing what I'm doing. And some days I feel like, no, I could have done lots of things. And other days I'm like, no, this is like, this kind of makes some sense. Um, <laughs> I certainly feel my experience is that, you know, a huge proportion of academics had at least, you know, somebody in their close family who was an academic. I think, I think there was a recent study that it was something like one in four, right? And I, I've always just like totally anecdotal experience felt like it was something like one in three, right? Um, right, yeah. I think it is very common and you know in some ways I think it's you know it's just yeah it's an interesting job I guess career to go into I mean you have to do a you know so many years of schooling if you look at the salaries perhaps they're not uh they seem a little low compared to the amount of school that you're you're going to right so I think if people don't have any experience with understanding what it is it seems like okay you're you're going to school for that many years for what many people perceive as you're going to be a teacher right uh because right. I think that's what what many uh, people who are who don't know, um, you know, academics that well think we we do mostly, um, and so yeah, I think I think there's a number of reasons for why it's it's and just you know people are not familiar maybe that that's a career that they could even opt for, but yeah. Yeah, my answer was to not look at the salary information and just be like kind of blissfully ignorant each day I was doing it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's. <laughs> I think there are so many other benefits, right, to, mm -hmm. to and things that are rewarding about it beyond just your, your strict salary, right? I, That's I, right. And I think people who have a family member who's an academic understand that, right? Um, what are some of the, the benefits of, of being an academic, the, the freedom to really focus on things that, you know, you're passionate about, um, all, the ability to always be learning, right? I mean, I think there's there's a lot of a lot of interesting things to work with, with people all around the world, right? Um, I think it's a really rewarding job personally, but I also understand that, you know, if you aren't really familiar with, with all of that, just looking maybe on paper, it might seem a little strange. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, arguably it is, a, I mean, it's, a, yeah, it, everything is a little bit strange and like academia is definitely its own kind of strange. I mean, I, like we started this podcast a couple of years ago and, you know, and it, for a while you could have just called it a hobby. And then it was just like, no, this is actually a part of the job. Cause like, that's what we're doing now. Um, okay, so you mentioned that you took a lot of classes in urban planning. I think some of our listeners will like have a good idea of what that is. And I'm sure a lot of people have like associations with it um, within the common field, although it's not like the only field that we engage with. How would you describe the discipline of urban planning? I think for some folks, there might be this association with like the, the planner who's like going about and moving the puzzle pieces in a city without regard to context, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's that maybe that narrative floating in some people's minds. Like how would you describe uh, the discipline and your exposure to it? Right, so I think perhaps I'm not the best person in the world to, to describe this since my degree is not actually in planning, but I do teach teach in our planning program now, right? Um, and you know, I think that the, the issue with planning is that it's, you know, the academic discipline and research in urban planning, I think, is a little bit different than than the profession, right? And obviously there's a connection because many of us who are researching in urban planning also are teaching the next generation of professional planners, right? Because that's what 
uh, most of our students are. Um, and yeah, so I think the, you know, the profession of planning, it is an accredited, you know, degree. It is a professional program where people are going out to be able to be planners, right? I'm, you know, probably the, the most obvious or sort of uh, clearest role for that is, is in land use planning, right? And like things like figuring out how to zone areas, um, you know, how to determine what can be built where, right? And what are the, the regulations for that? I think that's a huge part of it, right? Um, also, but I think there's there's lots of other roles that planning plays and, and, and even jobs that planners do, right? I mean, thinking about how to develop infrastructure, right? And so again, where, where that should go, how is it um, developed? Thinking about, um, you know, broad, more broadly about the vision for the future of a city, right? I mean, in many ways, like general plans or comprehensive plans that cities are developing are, um, are a lot about just laying out, okay, what do we think the future of the city is going to look like? Um, what are the projections for, you know, sort of population, for economics, and, um, and you know, how, how do we get to where we want to go, right? So I think that's part of it. Um, so thinking a lot of, you know, future thinking, a lot of collaboration too. I think planners are really good at um, just even because they have to be at working with different uh, sectors and fields, right? So, you know, obviously they work closely with engineers, with uh, other, you know, city departments and officials. Um, so, yeah, so I think there's, there's a lot of, a lot of that about thinking about the future, kind of figuring out, um, you know, what, how to get there in terms of uh, designing the city, developing it, reviewing um, new potential developments, right? And I think like planning as a, as a field too has really changed over time. You know, it's, you know, there was a time where it was really very much that kind of top-down vision, right? And I think that there was a real reckoning in planning where people rec recognize the sort of, um, you know, Robert Moses uh, vision and after, um, you know, in the sort of 60s, 70s that, that there were a lot of problems with, with that, I think getting at the, the point you were making. And so there was this real turn to focus much more to, I think for planning to have a, a much you know, more humble role to really try and work with communities to be much more um, participatory and collaborative. And I think that, um, yeah, this much, much less top-down centralized. And I think there is still a lot of that in planning, right? And I think planners are really concerned and very focused as a whole on equity and justice um, and, you know, trying to really, you know, just make our cities better for, for all residents, right? Um, mm. And how we can do that. So, so yeah, I think, you know, obviously there's lots of different visions and not everyone thinks the same, but, but yeah, uh, planning has a lot of things. And I think in recent years, a big, um, a big unifying feature of planning has been concerns with things like sustainability, right? Um, and how that connects issues of, uh, you know, environmental challenges um, and how we can try to tackle those, recognizing that the way we've been developing our cities is not um, very sustainable or not necessarily environmental friendly, environmentally friendly, trying to, to address that, um, while also, you know, obviously trying to create more just cities. And I think in really recently, there's certainly a, a big recognition of racial inequity and how that affects all aspects of urban life and, and also the role that planning played, right? And how, how planning was, was implicated um, in those inequities and injustices through things like, you know, redlining, right? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned Robert Moses. My cousin read the bi- biography of him, I think called like the power broker and re- recommended it to me. And I think it's like 700 pages long or something. Have you read that? Do you like, I have not. No, <laughs> I can't even like, I look at it. It's just like, I can't, I can't imagine starting this right now. Um, so yeah, you're in a department of, um, what is it? Geographic sciences and urban planning. Mm-hmm. Was that something that attracted you to this position is the opportunity to teach future planners? Cause that's something I go back and forth about in my own head is sometimes I feel like I would like more of that. Uh, Cause I'm, an, I'm at a liberal arts institution and I very much like the idea of this, you know, a diversity of perspectives, educating people as citizens. But there's sometimes, a, sometimes I also wish I could be part of like a more directed professionalization process. So how do you feel about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I do feel like I kind of get the best of of all worlds in the department that I am. So I mean, like from a, you know, intellectual scholarly perspective, I was really attracted to the combination of geography and planning in one unit because that's actually how I was framing myself in general and had been for for several years. So, so any job I applied for and, you know, on my website or whatever, it says I my work is at the intersection of urban geography and planning. So that's where I positioned myself. So um, it was, you know, really appealing that the the unit is also um, focused on combining geography and planning, which is actually incredibly rare um, in the U.S. As it turns out, I think I didn't fully realize that uh, because I was, you know, in at the University of Amsterdam, I was in this this uh, department that was combining human geography and planning, um, and. Then I was in this interdisciplinary school where it was really easy for me. So my advisor was a geographer by training, but also pretty interdisciplinary. Um, you know, I worked with, I, like I say, I had urban planner as a committee member, a political scientist, another geographer. So, you know, it was very, very interdisciplinary. So I kind of didn't fully realize that those are not commonly um, combined in one year. Mm. So that was really appealing. Um, but then, yeah, I think the, the idea that I could, could actually teach future, future practitioners who are going to go out and you know, try to, to make a difference in cities, right? Because that is what most of our, our masters of urban and environmental planning students are doing, um, I think is really great. Um, but then I also, you know, am able to work with PhD students, both in geography and planning. Um, all right, right now I advise a few PhD students, they're actually all in the geography PhD program, but I mean, are doing really work that is really, you know, at that intersection as well. Um, and so I think, and we have, you know, PhD uh, students in planning as well. Um, and then undergraduates, we actually have an undergraduate planning program and it's really popular. So we have a, like a four plus one program where students can do, um, you know, their bachelor's in planning and then go right in and finish the master's, the accredited master's of urban environmental planning in one year after that. So they start taking uh, master's or graduate courses in their senior year, essentially. And so, so yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity to really, I think, um, influence those. And then I think another aspect that's really nice is that we also have the school of sustainability at ASU and I work really closely with a lot of folks there, um, and actually can, you know, advise students in sustainability. My big undergraduate class that I teach in urban sustainability is cross-listed with planning and uh, the School of Sustainability. So I feel like they're also, there's students who are, they have programs that are, you know, 
more research focused, um, but also like more professional programs in sustainability. Yeah, I have to say, you're, I think you're the fifth or sixth person from ASU that we've interviewed for the podcast. And I've known people at ASU for uh, at least a decade, some folks like Michael Schoon, Marco Jensen, right. the Commons crew. Um, Sarah, do you call yourself a geographer? Yes. Yeah, so, well, so I call myself, uh, you know, a sort of interdisciplinary researcher, but who works at the intersection of geography and planning. So I would say I really straddle both of those. I try to keep one foot in geography and one foot in planning. Um, and I feel like sometimes, you know, some projects are more towards geography, some are more, more towards planning. I feel like some of my rec very recent projects have been a little bit more focused um, more on planning, but I definitely still, still want to connect with geography and, and keep a foot in there as well. Fair enough. Um, okay, so turning to a concept that I've seen in a fair bit of your work, this idea of resilience, uh, to give like 20 seconds of background from my own perspective. So I've been involved in the Resilience Alliance for quite a while. I was introduced to it uh, through my former PhD advisor. There was these uh, cohorts of Resilience Alliance Young Scholars and the Rays. And so I was a Ray person like a long time ago. And I just loved the community. I loved the, so I met people like Carl Folke and other other big shots and it was just one of the one of the seminal moments for me when I felt like I was like belonging in academia and I really love the concepts I mean to, to connect this to some of your own writings like what does resilience mean and I saw in one of your papers you talked about resilience as kind of a way of thinking and a perspective and a normative perspective and for me that's really how it connected with me is I read the paper by Halling and Mephi and like the pathology of command and control. And I was like, oh, this just makes sense. Like this is the perspective I want to use in my teaching about environmental governance. This fits with just how I feel almost about where we need to head in the world. So for me, it's been a very powerful concept uh, emotionally and intellectually, but I haven't, you know, I haven't gone out and measured it. Right. And so I think my, like when I was reading some of your work on this, it really resonated with me because it, 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 it felt like you were describing my own experiences at different times. So my first question for you is like, how did you first get uh, engaged with the idea of resilience and what do you like about it? Yeah. So, so I first was introduced to it actually um, in a in an elective seminar at the University of Amsterdam. So during my master's, it was uh, just luck, I guess, that two of the faculty um, there, I think had a small grant basically that was focused on urban resilience governance. And um, it was Isabaud and uh, Michela Hordijk. And they basically as part of that, were offering this, this small elective seminar um, to try to kind of make sense of, of what, it, what urban resilience would be. And so, we, you know, did a number of readings. It was a lot of the, at the you know, this was back in 2009, right? Uh, or 2000, maybe 2010, but um, around that time. And so, you know, resilience was was not, I would say the buzzword that it, it is today, right? The obviously the Resilience Alliance folks, uh, you know, the social ecological resilience, um, Stockholm resilience folks were, were certainly working on the topic, but it just wasn't like in the, the popular and policy discourse to the same extent that it is now, especially not urban resilience. So I think we were doing a lot of, you know, of those readings. Um, 
And to me, it just, yeah, it just really also resonated. I think one of the things that I found most powerful about it was that it, it felt like it was, um, you know, a, a way of thinking that really could be applied and, you know, a set of characteristics and, um, and perspective that could be applied to both like physical systems and the way they're managed or, or governance, right? And that was really powerful to me, especially as I was thinking about, you know, urban systems, right? Like, so thinking about like the energy sector, which was that I ultimately um, try, I tried to apply resilience theory to um, energy policies in Thailand for my master's thesis research. And that was what I found really interesting about it because, you know, some of these same characteristics that you see sort of uh, recommended, right, to enhance resilience of, of maybe ecosystems or, or physical infrastructure systems, things like diversity, redundancy, you also can apply those to governance, right? And I think that's just like a really interesting um, aspect of resilience that, that resonated with me. And just this idea that I think it's accepting that um, there's always going to be disruptions and, and change, right? And you have to sort of accepting that and trying to, you know, I don't know, expect and manage um, the unexpected that just like seemed to really resonate with me as well, especially as thinking about, you know, the future of cities, right? Um, in the face of climate change and just all, you know, rapid development, um, all of the things that, that cities are facing, right? In different ways, some shrinking, some growing, et cetera. Mm. So in your description, Sarah, it sounds like you're also referring to a way you characterize resilience in one of the papers you share with me as like a boundary object, as a way of connecting different fields because they can all make use of this common term. Absolutely. And I, I still think that that is, yeah, one of the, the more interesting things about resilience is that it does just, you know, obviously we work on, we research different things, right? But like it resonated with both with both of us, or we work in different systems, say. And I think that's true, right? And the fact that that urban resilience brings together, or resilience, right, brings together ecologists, people working on terrorism, right? And, um, you know, governance, and, and all those people somehow are reading each other's papers, right? And like, when when I started working on urban resilience, I was, I was reading NG, papers on engineering. Um, I was reading, you know, work on from urban ecologists and reading, you know, those who are thinking about, about terrorism and the fact that I think those, <laughs> that there's some common agenda there is I think really interesting and opens up uh, potential opportunities that wouldn't be there otherwise, right? Yeah, I mean, at the same time, do you worry about, um, I mean, I've heard critiques of like sustainability being, you know, used by so many people that it's meaning gets diluted because it's, and everyone likes it, no one wants to be unsustainable. And so I don't want to be like not resilient, but if everyone starts to use it, is there a concern about like the dilution of its meaning? I think absolutely, right? And I think it has, you know, in some ways it's already reached that, right? There are so many different ways of interpreting it um, that without, I think, further clarification, it, you know, yes, okay, maybe it brings people together, but yes, you absolutely, if you actually want to then apply it, um, say develop a resilience plan for a city or, uh, any kind of policy, then you're gonna have to to get into more detail. And um, actually, there was a I was part of a an interesting workshop a few years back. It was the Aspen Global Change Institute. It was a resilience workshop, right? And it was really trying to bring very different perspectives on resilience together. And this was actually when I was still a PhD student, but it, it was a lot of great great folks together um, trying to sort of make sense of it. And actually, the first couple of days, it was a multi day workshop. 
the first couple of days were incredibly tense and not very productive, right? Like people had really strong feelings about what resilience was and what it wasn't. And I think people were really just all talking past each other. And it was actually only at a point where um, it was Susie Moser. I don't know if you you know of her at all. Um, she she's you know one of the the leaders in in the ad climate adaptation world. Um, but she was one of the organizers of the workshop, and I think she really helped to sort of synthesize uh, the different ways that people were were thinking about resilience. Um, and this actually was the foundation for for a sort of framework that we then. Um, we then published it, that she was the, the lead author on that paper um, in climatic change. But basically it was this idea that resilience is either like a, uh, a system characteristic, right? An outcome or a process, right? And basically depending on how you think about like which one of those positions or wh which one of those ideas you're thinking about, it has very different implications, um, very different assumptions, right? And you know, how, you know, what that means for management, what that means for, for example, the relationship between resilience and sustainability, right, is really different. So like, if you're thinking about resilience as a system characteristic, there isn't, you know, it's not necessarily, there's, you know, resilience could be either bad or good, right? Sustainability is kind of the, the normative outcome. And I think there are a number of folks who, who still, some of them, you know, with the Resilience Alliance, uh, who are still really arguing for this, right? Because they're concerned about I think the politicization and like dilution of this concept of resilience, they don't want it to have so much of this normative perspective, right? Um, so they say, keep sustainability as more of the normative goal and have resilience actually be something that a system characteristic that we can actually like measure, right? Um, so, so then resilience isn't, isn't bad or good. It's, it's um, you know, it's a characteristic and that depending if you have, you know, a system that's very sustainable, then you want it to be resilient. If it's not sustainable, you actually want to undermine resilience and try to transform it, right? Um, if it's a process, right, then resilience um, is something that you need to foster in order to like work towards sustainability, right? And then if it's an outcome, well, actually they're kind of the same thing, right? And maybe resilience is actually a replacement for sustainability in this like more dynamic uh, world, right? That's kind of the idea there. And so, so that's where I think some of the confusion comes in is like if somebody is thinking about it as this outcome right and they have this very normative idea and somebody else says no like resilience is not necessarily good or bad and like sustainability is the normative goal they that can really you know it can be um problematic <laughs> and they can have trouble sort of trying to to work together and that was yeah. what we found and actually once that like once we sort of threw that up on a you know on a slide and everyone looked at it and sort of positioned or located themselves within within the that framework, we were able to have a lot better conversations after that in the sort of final day, I think, of the workshop. So anyway, so that was why we were like, all right, this seems like it really was helpful. We're gonna try and try and get that out there. That's really interesting. I mean, this this process of a bunch of folks kind of like talking past each other sounds, you know, I think it sounds familiar to most people. And I think it relates to the fact that, you know, once we're thinking about resilience as this boundary object, we're in a very interdisciplinary space. Right. So you've espoused the values of interdisciplinarity. I think most people I talk to do. I do. I like it. I'm, you know, multi, you know, transdisciplinarity, <laughs> whatever, whichever version you want, like I'm generally for. And then it's always, it's always, you know, when the rubber hits the road, it's actually really kind of a pain. And it's hard to, it gets emotionally challenging. It's like being in a room with people who are like upset because they don't feel represented. 
and ego gets involved. And it's just, you have these like humans that are uh, very talented, but also like our professional identities can feel sometimes fragile in these spaces where we're not well represented, et cetera. And so do you feel like there was, it sounds like there was a lesson about how to meet like interdisciplinary challenges in this meeting. I mean, a couple of things I picked up on. So you have this initial space where like people are talking past each other and we've all kind of seen that and that's challenging. And then you have a particular individual. And then one thing I heard is you also have like this, was it a whiteboard or something as maybe like a boundary object for people to kind of engage with? Yeah, I mean, it ended up being this sort of, well, I think it was just that, that uh, it was a slide, right? I think uh, just sort of a, quickly, somebody sketched up this sort of framework, right? I don't, I don't think there was actually a, a board per se, but I think really that framework was what did and ultimately sort of act as this, this boundary object that helped us and really just, you know, a, I think to, in my mind, it was a lesson in the importance of, you know, really locating yourself, you know, identifying your own assumptions and definitions um, and making those really clear and transparent, right? And I think this is something that I, I feel like, you know, I'm seeing in other, other areas too. So actually just as an example, like for green infrastructure, right? The, another now kind of almost buzzword boundary object that I also do quite a bit of work on that's increasingly popular, right? And we're seeing it everywhere. Um, I am a co-author on a paper that should be coming out like any day now in landscape and urban planning that's actually really thinking in sort of similar ways about green infrastructure and trying to figure out, okay, like how it was also like spurred from a, well, an AAG uh, panel discussion and a recognition that there were really different ways that people were talking about green infrastructure, both um, you know, across the disciplines, but also like geographically in different places. So like, for instance, how we think about green infrastructure in the US is quite different than how we think about it and how uh, people, including like not just academics, but policymakers think about it in uh, the UK or you know, in China and that we have different terminology that are associated with it. And that these have very like real implications for like what you would actually be putting on the ground, right? Like what would green infrastructure look like is very different um, under these different sort of uh, conceptualizations, right? And so um, we sort of break it down through like a look, reviewing different, um, so doing like a different more academic literature review, more like gray literature review um, and come up with basically say there's sort of like three seems like dominant ways of thinking about green infrastructure. One is as um, as really like a green space planning kind of approach, right? So this is like thinking about greenways or uh, green belts or, you know, looking sort of city scale or garden cities, right? Um, and so this is kind of the oldest way of thinking about green infrastructure, which is bringing sort of nature back into the city, thinking about it as this whole like network of, of vegetation in cities or, or open spaces, right? Um, another is like really more of a sort of what we call like an urban ecology conceptualization. Um, and this is thinking about ecosystem services, nature-based solutions kind of um, approach. It's, it's in some ways, uh, you know, it, it's, I would say it includes, you know, vegetation, but a lot of like natural elements and thinking really about like the ecosystem services that it provides, right? The ecological benefits. And then the third, which is what we see most often in practice in the US, which I think has really become dominant in the US is the idea of like 
green infrastructure as a stormwater management solution or a water management solution, right? And this is a much narrower idea of green infrastructure. It's really something that's like your engineering um, and we're talking about, you know, rain gardens, bioretention basins, and it's, you know, seen as a sort of alternative way of managing stormwater. It's driven a lot by um, EPA requirements and really the sort of EPA conceptualization of green infrastructure, right? So anyways, but basically, again, with all of these three different ideas, I think we're not arguing that one is necessarily right or wrong, but that, um, that you really need to figure out which one of these definitions you are talking about and be really clear about it. And like, we would even argue, like add some terminology. So like, if you're gonna be talking about green infrastructure as the stormwater part, why not call it green stormwater infrastructure just to like be crystal clear that you're not just talking about all vegetation in a city, right? Um, yeah. I mean, could, so someone, could someone cynically interpret the characterization of a project as being about green infrastructure when really it's about stormwater runoff because it sounds better just to just call it green infrastructure because it's like it's harder to argue against something that seems so broadly nice right that is and that is exactly the concern um is that if you would yeah if you basically if you sell everything as green, you know, you sell it all as green infrastructure and you're not clear that really all you're focusing on here is the stormwater, you know, management part of it, then yeah, I think, you know, because when, and this is something that, that I've written quite a bit about, right, is like this rationale, like when people are, when people, cities, policymakers, right, are sort of selling green infrastructure, they're often, you know, talking about all of these different, like, benefits that it's going to provide, right? Um, you know, maybe people are thinking about, you know, new parks, new trees, right? But if you're really thinking about it very narrowly in terms of stormwater management, it could just be like some pervious pavement, right? Or, uh, you know, gravel retention basin, and that that's not going to provide all of those other co-benefits. Um, and if all you're measuring and all, if all your, your, uh, actually making decision, decisions on is the stormwater management aspect, that's perfectly fine, right? Because that's still providing that, that function for you. Um, but, you know, if you're not integrating these other sort of co-benefits into actual like design and, and decision making, then who's to say that you're actually going to get them? That's sort right. of my argument <laughs> with this, right? And I just think that that's what's ending up happening. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily a problem that like stormwater management is driving a lot of green infrastructure development in the US. Um, it's great that that provides funding for that maybe, but I think it, we have to be careful then about how we're selling it, right? That we're not over-promising all these other benefits if we're not actually, um, you know, actually Delivering. including those in 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 the decision making process okay. for how we implement it. Okay, so now I have a whole bunch of questions about both green infrastructure and resilience and the relationship. So we've got our work cut out for us for the however long we have <laughs> for the interview. So um, I mean, so one initial follow up, and then I do want to get back to your work on kind of defining resilience in the urban space, and then ask you about your work in, in New York City, where I'm aware that you've applied some of these, like you've looked at some of these arguments um, in how it's done there. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that uh, this emphasis on like stormwater, is that motivated because it's kind of a, so again, I'm aware that I'm projecting my own interpretation here. 
what my brain is telling me is that this sounds like the implementation of a more politically palatable, technically oriented solution because other things are that are more concerned about resilience and social equity are maybe less politically tractable or have other costs that stormwater focused projects don't have. Is some version of that happening or is that just not a, the right interpretation here? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think, okay, it's hard, it's hard to generalize, right? But I think for green infrastructure, it is definitely true that it is driven in, I think in, in the US in most cities by stormwater goals, right? That's where the funding comes from. I mean, it's in the places where it's really been implemented the most or where, you know, the cities that tend to have like the, the most ambitious green infrastructure plans and goals are those that have combined sewer systems, right? And are generally under consent decree from uh, the federal government that they need to basically clean up their water, right? And they've figured out they are, they have determined that that probably uh, gr using green infrastructure may actually be more cost effective um, than actually trying to go in and like change all of the existing sewer system. And Sarah, right? so, so, I'm yep. sorry, can I, I, I think, uh, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I think a lot of listeners are going to appreciate some clarification on what is actually happening here with like the combined, because yep. I've heard about this, but I think a lot of people are like, what is she talking about? Like, what is the actual issue here? So we have this like combined system and then there's this other thing like stormwater overflows. So could you just like lay yeah. out like what the issue is here and how Okay, this is yeah, helping? so so older cities basically, so you have it, you know, you have your stormwater, right? Which is the water that comes from precipitation, right? So when it rains, you have, uh, have stormwater. Uh, or snow when it melts, right? Um, and you have uh, the water that comes out of your, you know, comes from your house, from your toilets, from your sinks, uh, showers, et cetera. And in older cities, you generally have one sewer system. So one set of pipes where uh, the, you know, the stormwater goes into, you know, on sewers on the streets and the water, the wastewater from your house go into the same pipes which then go to a water treatment uh, facility uh, where that water is cleaned and then eventually released out into bodies of water, right? Um, so this is, you know, cities like Philadelphia, New York, right? Basically any of your older cities um, in the US and in many places are gonna have these combined sewer systems. The challenge is that those sewer systems are not necessarily uh, designed, right, for uh, the, the magnitude or the volume of, of water or storm water that we're seeing in these cities, right? That's due to urban development, which has created a lot more like paved areas, buildings. So you have a lot more runoff. You also have changes in precipitation due to climate change, other factors, right? So, so basically there's, there's more water than these systems are designed to hold. Um, and so what ends up happening is when you have a big storm event, um, the systems get basically you know, backed up, um, there's too much water. And so what they have to do is they have to release untreated water in order to avoid basically sewer water, like going backwards, right? But you want, you don't want, you know, people's wastewater, uh, you know, flowing out onto the streets. So they end up having to treat either like only slightly treated or completely untreated uh, water into water bodies, which then obviously creates a water quality problem. And you, may be surprised how often you have these combined sewer overflows, which is what they're called, right? When you, they have to do these releases, how often they actually happen in these older cities, right? Um, and it does create a big, big 
water pollution problem. Um, and that's why the federal government has generally basically mandated that these cities need to try and fix this, right? Um, and so cities like New York have said, okay, well, um, you know, obviously they need to probably upgrade some of their sewer systems in these uh, places, but also um, green infrastructure can help to basically capture some of this runoff to the idea being that it's gonna reduce the amount of runoff um, during a storm event that's going to go into this combined sewer system. Oh, and just to contrast this, newer cities um, have more have separated systems, right? So your stormwater goes into one set of pipes, your wastewater goes into another. And so it's less of an issue because you know you can release that water and you're not releasing uh, you know water from people's toilets, right? <laughs> wastewater out into the body's water. You're just releasing runoff. And there are still some water quality issues associated with doing that because, for example, that runoff flows over streets where there's, you know, uh, pollution and things that then get, you know, put out into water bodies. But generally, they cities that have these separated sewer systems, places like Phoenix, right, are not as, uh, they're not under the same obligations. They're not, it's not as much of uh, an issue, right, in terms of water quality. Okay, got it. Great. Uh, so yeah, so quite an issue to have, like, human waste in streets, in, in conclusion. Yeah, they want to rightfully avoid that. That is a public health, a major public health issue. So, you know, the solution is these combined sewer overflows, but they're not great either. Okay. So, okay. So getting back to the conversation about resilience, um, you've done some work on trying to clarify and formally define like what we mean when we talk about resilience, specifically in cities. The first question I have there is, what were the critiques of resilience that you were in part responding to? Like what was wrong with the status quo when you did that work? Yeah, so um, a few different critiques, right? So one was this idea that, that, you know, that we've kind of already touched on, right? That resilience is such a vague and sort of nebulous concept. It's so hard to define that there's no real way to actually apply it or measure it, right? So it just needed more clarity. So that's one. Um, another is that there, because in part, because this uh, concept was coming from, uh, you know, sort of being taken from, from ecology fields and, and eco social ecological systems and sort of applied to cities, that there wasn't enough thinking about uh, the politics associated with this, right? Like, issues of power and politics, also uh, social equity, right? Um, not enough concern and consideration about those. Um, also about trade-offs inherent in thinking about this. Um, and what is this idea? Like there was, you know, tensions, well, a number of these, of, of kind of these conceptual tensions, right? Um, in that there are very different ways of understanding it. And these have, you know, real implications for how you would actually apply um, or, you know, say develop a resilience definition, right? Okay. I mean, so having looked at your work at green infrastructure, it sounds like a lot of these same ideas apply there. Yeah, I think, I mean, absolutely. And in fact, the reason that I ended up uh, working on green infrastructure was because when I was really looking at what cities were doing in the name of resilience, right? Like, so what actually, what were cities actually implementing to enhance resilience? I kept seeing green infrastructure um, and it seemed like it was kind of being presented in many ways as this sort of panacea, right? Um, and, you know, as we all know, we, we need to be, be concerned whenever we see that. Um, and so that was, 
in part what, what really got me interested in green infrastructure was it basically was just that it, it seemed to be like one of the most popular, if not the most popular resilient strategies that cities were, were applying. And so, yeah, I think basically it's just in some ways, I think you can use it as sort of a, an example, right? Or, or something a little, one, one aspect um, to really dig into these, these bigger urban resilience questions, right? Which apply, I think, across all different um, systems and scales, et cetera. Okay. So could you then talk to us about, you know, how, what clarifications you settled on in your work that have felt, you know, useful for you and in, in your research community for resilience? Yeah. So, well, I think my feeling was that it was helpful to sort of try and first kind of delineate what these like tensions were. Right. So again, like, as part of this idea of like, you need to sort of position yourself, you need to, you know, because these are, are nebulous concepts, right? And we're not, and because we want them to be boundary objects, we don't necessarily, you know, want to get too, too specific. We still want them to be a little bit flexible, but again, we still need to take like a position on um, some of these big tensions, right? So like some of those that, that we identified, so the six that we identified were first, like what is urban? Right. Um, so, you know, urban scholars have been trying to theorize about what a city is or isn't for a long time. Right. But it was kind of surprising to see that a lot of the, the urban resilience work didn't actually really talk a whole lot about like what was actually like how we should think about a city. Right. And like what are the, the systems within a city that we would need to actually consider um, if we wanted to say develop like a holistic resilience plan. So that was like one, right? Another is this idea of, of system equilibrium, right? And this is, I think, a really big, well, a couple of tensions. So system equilibrium. So this is like, do urban systems have like a sort of single equilibrium, which resilience is about returning to, uh, or are there potentially multiple uh, states of equilibrium, right? And this is related to this idea of, of engineering resilience versus ecological resilience that Halling, um, you know, first delineated, right? This um, is when my brain starts to hurt when I, we apply these ideas to like big social systems and I just, I start to struggle. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. So, it, so then, and then, or are cities basically so complex, so dynamic that they don't have an equilibrium. And that's kind of the, ultimately the position we take, right? Is that uh, I, I think this idea that like there would be an equilibrium that we would return to in a city just doesn't really make sense, right? Cities are so dynamic, so um, changeable and yeah, like bouncing back to something is probably just not realistic and probably not even desirable, right? And so this relates to another tension, which is, okay, is resilience, um, is it normative, right? Is it something, is it a th this normative goal that we have? Is it always positive or is it more of this neutral system characteristic, right? Um, and I think when we think holistically like about cities, we generally don't really see people suggesting that it would not be positive for a city as a whole to be resilient. But the position that we take is that certain parts of cities, right, certain systems, you might actually not want them to be resilient if they're really unsustainable or unjust, right? And you might actually need to, to change them, right? And so this then relates to a fourth tension, which is about, okay, how much change do you allow, right? So is resilience really just about resisting change? Is it about bouncing back? Or is it like also include, 
you know, does it allow for transitions, right? Or trans or even like radical transformation. And the position that we take there is that resilience, because we say yes, it overall is this positive, it is this positive thing, right? We generally see that people want their city to be resilient. But again, because cities are not sustainable and they're not just as they currently are, I think we that's not really uh like a contentious <laughs> statement, right? Um, that because of that, we're gonna have to trans like transform some aspects of them, right? And so if resilience is going to be this, this sort of goal for cities, then we need to include and recognize, you know, transitions and transformation as part of that. Um, and yeah, and then I think also another question is, whether you have, so that's like this idea of, of bounce forward and what I think uh, bounce forward resilience. And one, one issue that I, I have found in my work is that despite the, I think academic literature moving more, more and more recognizing this issue that resilience really does have to be about, you know, bouncing forward. And we even sort of see it in some like policy discourse, things like the, you know, the Rockefeller Foundation's 100 Resilient Cities program. I think they recognize this need for, for transformation and improvement. Um, but I keep finding that when you actually ask like practitioners, right, city officials uh, or even, you know, public, there is still often this uh, very predominant conceptualization of resilience as bouncing back or even resisting change, right? And I think this is problematic um, if resilience is going to, you know, be an organizing principle, if it's maybe even going to replace like sustainability as this goal for cities, which some people argue, I mean, I think that that's still... Um, still an open question, but, but it is, it is clearly a goal that a lot of, of, you know, city plans and policies have. And so if that's a problem, if it really is just about like, you know, bouncing back, uh, the status quo, then I do, I do worry about that. Right. Um, so yeah, so that was another tension. Then I think another issue is the idea of, well, is, uh, resilience just about becoming, is it about very specific threats, right? This like, is it be about becoming highly adapted um, to, a, you know, a certain state of things or should it, should the goal really be trying to increase your general generic kind of a, adaptive capacity, right? Or ability to, uh, flexibility to deal with like whatever would happen in the future. And so there we really argue that it has to be about this more flexible adaptive capacity that actually there's a real risk. Um, and I know other like resilient scholars have argued this too, that there's a risk if you uh, focus too much on specified resilience, right? Instead of sort of generic resilience. Um, and then uh, the final tension then was about sort of time scale. A lot of, you know, we just recognize that there's a big issue of, of time, right? Um, and, you know, in a city, you, when it comes to urban resilience, right? Like if you, if it takes longer to recover or respond, that means that people are suffering probably, right, in a disruption. And so just recognizing that that sort of time is of the essence and you do need to have like focus on speed, which was something that we often didn't see. So yeah, so those were, those were some of the big tensions. And so in like crafting uh, our new definition, we tried to really explicitly um, take a position on each of those. Uh, but even then, still, our definition is like pretty broad. Um, and so with that, to sort of get at this and try to address this, this other critique that I mentioned earlier about like the lack of attention to these, the politics of resilience, right? 
that's where we propose the, the five W's um, of urban resilience, what we call the basically just a set of questions of you know, resilience for whom, of what, uh, what spatial and temporal scale, so um, where and when, and then why, right? Thinking about motivations and just really argue that if we're gonna take a definition and act, this definition and actually apply it, again, develop a plan or policies around resilience, then we need to actually negotiate these questions. And we should do that in a transparent way because they have very real uh, implications and that there's trade-offs associated with how you answer those. Um, and those are happening regardless, right? They exist no matter what. Um, it's just a matter of like, are you being open about that or or not, right? Or and and it's just important to think about who's making those decisions, right? And so again, same thing with like the thinking about it in a more concrete way, like about green infrastructure, right? Um, you know, decisions are being made about like where to put green infrastructure. So how are those decisions being made? Who's making them, right? Um, is it all just focused on on maximizing the stormwater benefit, or are there other sort of concerns and co-benefits maybe that are being uh, integrated into those decision-making processes. That's some of the stuff that questions I'm trying to trying to look at right now. Yeah, I know it's all really interesting. I mean, the, the last thing you said to kind of work backward um, reminds me of this concept I learned in some philosophy class a long time ago about a forced decision. I think it's also just referred to as this idea that no decision is still a decision. Like the, the status quo is a decision. And so we need to, our responsibility is to at least be transparent about how we're thinking about. And I mean, I think there's two levels here, right? Is, is one, be transparent to other people, but also be transparent to ourselves, like develop our own self-awareness about the decisions that we're committing ourselves to, which seems really important. So, I mean, I feel like what I'm hearing is really like a, like a nice guide to other people that want to implement this idea it sounds like you're encouraging them to consider these tensions, think about how you've responded to them, think about maybe also how they would want to respond to them. And then there's these, the five W's of, and I've heard this, I've heard that kind of thing before, like resilience where, for whom is a big one, like who actually has mm -hmm. been, like who is resilient, who's not. Um, the idea of whether or not we want like broad spectrum or narrow spectrum resilience, which I think I'm frankly borrowing the broad versus narrow spectrum from like, my work on pesticides. Um, <laughs> that also feels related to maybe my favorite term I heard you use in the last 10 minutes, which is let's say a bouncing forward, which I hadn't actually heard before. And I really love it. Um, this idea, and, and that reminds me of this discourse that I've heard in like public health about, you know, the, the, the term that kept coming to me, Sarah, when you're talking about that is reactivity, right? Like this has been a critique of like public health is that we're too reactive or medicine. We wait for someone to get sick and then we do something, but we're not proactive and actually trying to get them to be healthy and flourish and not need uh, interventions. And so that, uh, what you were talking about sounded like a similar reframing of resilience as being something that we want to be more proactive about and not just about like, okay, the next time something bad happens, how do we get back to where we are? Maybe we don't want to be where we are in the first place. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's lots of different, different ways to try and do that, right? Like thinking, I think about, you know, to say future scenario planning, or just trying to be, yeah, to really like, think about what our vision is. And then again, yeah, and trying to really promote this idea that resilience doesn't just have to be about, you know, bouncing back, right? Because again, like I've, a couple different projects where I've been looking where we've basically surveyed different um, different practitioners, right, in in cities. Um, 
And just a lot of the time, that is still the way they tend to be thinking about resilience. And again, I find that like a bit, a bit concerning for the prospects of, you know, transformative change that I'd like to see happen in cities, right? Towards more sustainable and more just um, futures. Yes, well put. So uh, one final question about urban resilience, and then I'd love to hear about your work in New York City. Um, so the first question you asked, which is like kind of what is the urban? It reminded me of a question I've been ha I've had since the beginning of the interview, which is, you know, what do you think is different about urban resilience versus like resilience per se? Because as someone who's read a lot of resilience literature, there were parts of your work that felt, okay, this is more specific to urban, but of course there were other parts that I felt like, well, you know, I, I work in irrigation in the middle of nowhere, like this could be helpful. Have you thought much about that? Because a little, a little more background for me as well is like, so as someone who works in like the commons field, it's actually unusual for folks to be working in urban systems. Most of us work in like rural systems and there was just this interesting conference on like the urban commons as this place that people are trying to expand these ideas. Um, so I'm coming from kind of the opposite system type along that dimension. So I'm just curious about whether you've thought about that, about the generalizability of these ideas beyond your chosen context is another way to put it. Yeah. So that's a great question. I, I mean, I think my concern about it, so I have thought about it, but, but actually more in terms of, so a lot of the work on resilience, right? Absolutely. You're right. Comes from from well, a lot of rural systems, like ecological, you know, ecosystems, right? And it tends to be these sort of, um, you know, like looking at a particular lake ecosystem, right? Or coral reefs or something. And then we tend to take the characteristics and the insights from that and actually just largely assume that they're going to apply to urban systems. And I have long, like slightly questioned this and like worried a little bit about it. But I think the challenge is that it's really, really hard to actually like measure urban, you know, monitor and measure urban systems, right? Because they are so complex and, and big, right? Um, and also, you know, very dynamic. And I, I'm not to, not to say that, that rural systems aren't, right? And I think this is, again, this is probably like my own the grass is always greener on the other side, right? So I probably look at it and think like, oh, those systems are like so much simpler and <laughs> would be easier if I could just, you know, focus on, on a small- I think know, they might be simpler, Sarah. <laughs> maybe, okay, maybe they are. I don't know. Yeah. I didn't want to assume, but, uh, yeah. but, but I, that was my sort of feeling is that maybe they're a little bit simpler and more, you know, more manageable, more measurable, and that urban systems are just so big and complex. And I think that there is, it is a real challenge to actually like, I mean, holistic, I, I sort of started my PhD, right, wanting, thinking that I wanted to like measure urban resilience, right, and I think the, the further I go, the, the more I almost think that's impossible, um, and, you know, the sort of best way that it seems like we've gotten, we've, you know, that seems like the best way that, or closest we can get right now, at least, is to try to, to measure sort of characteristics that we think enhance resilience in different urban systems, but again, the challenge there is that I think many of those characteristics come mostly from studies of very different systems. And so what I guess I would call for in the future is like more research that really tries to like measure these in urban systems and actually see if, if they hold up, right? Like, you know, do the same things like, you know, how, how does redundancy, you know, diversity, 
you know, things that are more complicated, like modularity or, or decentralization, right? Like how do those work in, um, you know, in urban systems? So yeah, I think, or even, you know, polycentricity, right? Like there's a lot of this, I, and I think that relates to this, you know, how to, how does that work in, in urban systems and things? So yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't think I'm going to steer us down the polycentricity path right now. That would take a, that <laughs> no, would be another, not. yeah. So, um, Getting back to the green infrastructure, keeping in mind that I, I, there do seem to be some parallels in how you're approaching these, the concerns you have about them, the lack of clarity, the need to kind of unpack what we mean about these things and, and the behavioral implications of doing that. Could you um, talk about how you applied that perspective to what New York was doing with its green infrastructure programs? I'm aware that you have this like GIS system, et cetera. So it'd be great to hear a little bit about that. What was your perspective yeah. and what did you find? Yeah, so there again, it was sort of motivated by this idea of like, okay, you know, well, so, so there was the idea that, you know, when it comes to or, you know, thinking about green infrastructure and resilience, right? It's sort of assumed that it's gonna provide, well, when, when cities are making the case like New York uh, for, for this green infrastructure approach, right? Which is like sort of a little bit more experimental is the perception, um, and, you know, newer approach than, and, and maybe more, there's more uncertainty around it than doing something like just, you know, expanding the sewer pipe, right? Um, they do that with, they make that case by arguing that it's going to provide a whole bunch of sort of other sustainability benefits, right? Or resilience benefits um, from, you know, local cooling to improving air quality, potentially providing increased like access to green space, um, all of these other potential ecosystem services, if you want to call them that, right? Uh, or whatever, co-benefits. Um, and I was interested in, okay, so so that's great to, to again, provide that as a sort of rationale, but when it actually comes to making decisions about where green infrastructure gets placed and like what kind of green infrastructure, right? Because as we've said, it's, it's a bit nebulous and there's lots of different potential designs, different uh, sizes, right? Um, places you could put it in the city, how do they make those decisions? And so I um, interviewed some officials there and then, um, and what I found was that it was, you know, really, and looked at looked at the plans and, and what I found is that it was really stormwater, again, really stormwater driven, right? Again has this combined sewer system. They're focused on, on these water quality benefits, um, managing runoff. And so then um, what I wanted to do with this, this sort of GIS analysis, as you mentioned, so this is what I call the green infrastructure spatial planning model. And I first sort of developed this as part of my dissertation in New York and I've applied it to a number of other cities. So to um, Los Angeles, New York, and then Manila and the Philippines trying to develop it. And it's really this idea that like, okay, you know, how could we figure out, how could we prioritize different neighborhoods um, based on, you know, where, which, how could you figure out which neighborhoods to prioritize for green infrastructure um, based on different sort of benefits, right? So more from like an ecological uh, habitat connectivity, stormwater, um, where the hotter areas, areas with higher um, air pollution, higher social vulnerability, right? Because there's like other sort of seen as social benefits um, to this and uh, also access where places that have like lack access to green space. If you say develop green infrastructure more as like uh, multifunctional parks, right? Um, or, or just add vegetation that there could be 
uh, that can help to address disparities that we know exist in terms of uh, access to green space in different neighborhoods. So basically trying to like create different, um, different spatial layers for each of these, right? Um, and and then when you do that, like you can kind of look at where are there potential trade-offs, right? So this is also a way of trying to get it to make some of those, those trade-offs in decision-making more explicit, right? More transparent to put them out there. Um, so you can look at, you know, where are their trade-offs, where are their spatial synergies in these different benefits? Um, and just basically get a sense of like, okay, well, if all you do is focus on stormwater, are you also going to be prioritizing green infrastructure in areas that are high priority for say heat or um, air quality, right? And in the New York case, I actually find that generally, yes, like those tend to be fairly highly correlated. So yes, the city is really focused on stormwater, um, but it seems like those area, those neighborhoods would also tend to be higher priority based on the indicators that I was looking at for uh, for heat and, and air quality as well. Um, the other aspect of the, the GISP model, as I call it, is that um, you can that you can wait to so like to try to say, okay, well, would there also be areas which are sort of hot spots for multifunctionality where multiple of these benefits are really needed, right? Um, then you can kind of you can combine the different uh, indicators, right? The different layers. Um, you could apply different weights depending on what the priorities are. And so for some of the models for the New York one, there I was using actual like survey. Um, results that I conducted for different different stakeholders asking what they saw as the, the biggest priorities of these sort of six uh, different criteria that I was looking at. Um, and then use the survey results to, to create those weights and then uh, combine them that way to try to identify these hotspots. But I've also developed more like web apps where somebody could just go on, go on and actually put in their own weights and then see how the priority areas would change. Um, based on those. So those are just little like our shiny apps that allow you to pretty easily do that, adding in the, um, you know, with those different layers, and then you can kind of see the results in real time. So I think those could be powerful tools. But yeah, all of this is, is really just a way of trying to, to show why it matters, <laughs> how, um, how these decisions are made, and sort of what might, uh, what might be, you know, what are the missed opportunities potentially for not thinking about and planning green infrastructure in this more multifunctional way, or at least like being uh, more, you know, more conscious of, of what these are and, you know, trying to, to strategically, um, you know, choose areas based on, on whatever benefits you really want to achieve, right? And I think, again, there's lots of different ways you could advance um, these models and, and build on them and, you know, continuing to think about that. But again, the big takeaway there is just this idea that there is, and in, and this is in some recent work, um, we've been looking at this across uh, more U.S. cities. So looking at 19 different U.S. cities and lots of different plans. And we've more, been more systematically analyzing um, and sort of qualitatively coding, right? What are the citing criteria that they're, they're discussing, at least in the plans? And it's generally confirmed that uh, the focus is, you know, overwhelmingly sort of hydrologic uh, considerations, right? And not a lot of um, other sort of co-benefits uh, as much and not a lot of, and definitely not a lot of like equity or justice considerations either. Okay. So um, 
Do you talk to the people you're engaging with this research about these decision support tools that you're generating? Do you talk to them about how they could use them for their own research? Is that something that interests you to try to get, you know, decision makers to, I mean, it's kind of, as you said, right, we need to be more transparent about how we're making these decisions, et cetera. It sounds like someone could use this tool that you're talking about to do just that. Is that a goal that you have? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I think, you know, um, I did talk to, you know, people in each of the cities about the tools. Um, I have talked, you know, I had like actually had like workshops in each of the cities where I brought together um, different stakeholders um, and sort of presented some of the preliminary results uh, to them as well of the different layers and also use that to that was where in many ways, uh, in many cases, collected the, the survey results, right? Asking mm -hmm. them about their priorities and introduced the model, shared the work. So yeah, so doing that, but then I still think to your point, like in the, you know, moving forward, my goal in developing any kind of decision support tools is definitely to like work more closely with uh, the decision makers throughout the development, right? Um, I think that that's gonna make them much more likely to actually be used, right? And so I've actually been sure. working with, um, I've been helping out with a project with the, with local um, folks here in in Phoenix um, to kind of develop a somewhat similar tool, but that's been really, so that's like a project that's led by locally by the Nature Conservancy, Bureau of Reclamation, but also in partnership with the city of Phoenix, um, air quality, uh, the county air quality and county flood control districts um, and departments. And so that's been really fun to like from the beginning kind of be, uh, you know, giving suggestions and listening and, and hearing it. So it'll be, yeah, the goal is that to sort of develop or at least consider how we, how that might, they might develop a decision support tool related to green infrastructure. It's been some modeling as well, but it's been, it's been a long process, a <laughs> couple of years, but, but also really interesting to, to be involved in that. Right. To me, it's been a real positive development across several fields towards a more transdisciplinary orientation where we, we don't feel as entitled to kind of, and it's hard for me to say this in a way it doesn't sound judgy and pejorative, but kind of sit back and kind of say, we're going to produce knowledge and it's the job of other people to engage with, you know, the world because that engagement, the implementation is not the easy part, right? It requires different skills that need, you know, different muscles that need their own development to kind of work with people and actually get things done. And I think it's undervalued how much, that on the ground doing can be synergistic with the development of tools and theory. Mm -hmm. I think there's this kind of artificial divide between those two. A lot of like my most theoretically productive times have been when I'm just in the field working with NGOs, et cetera, and I'll just have an aha moment because I'm trying to get something done with them. I'm like, oh, this is why this is hard, right? And that was not captured in like the PDF I wrote two years ago because I hadn't had this experience yet. Absolutely, no, I think, you know, real kind of partnerships and co-production is worth, is totally worth it. And it's where I really want to, you know, go with my research. I mean, my research is always somewhat, you know, pretty applied, I think. Um, I do think there's, and I think you're right. Like, I think that we have this idea that there, that no good, you know, that we're not going to get theoretically significant or, you know, maybe generalizable work out of that sometimes, but I think you can. Um, I do, the only thing I will say is I think it just takes a lot of time, right? And patience. And sometimes it feels like the incentives in academia um, are not necessarily aligned, you know, for that. And sometimes just like practically, 
you know, the timing doesn't always work out. Like, you know, I think some of this, so developing the, these GIST models was part of my dissertation, right? And I wanted to finish my dissertation. And sometimes that felt like, you know, that the pace that I wanted to go and finishing that wasn't necessarily, um, you know, in line perfectly with like how it would, what would be needed if I was really going to like co-develop a decision support tool, like with a particular city, right? Um, and Absolutely. I think, you know, also maybe, if I would go back and do it in hindsight, it might have focused on fewer cities too, because I think that was challenging as well, trying to like, you know, go back and forth between these different different cities and learn about different cities that I think maybe focusing in. But again, that's that's a, a tension between, you know, there's a desire for generalizability and more cases, you know, trying to say publish, you know, one case study is always a little bit more challenging than if you have multiple. And so there, there's some tensions there that I think uh, can complicate it. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I think the incentive structure makes it challenging to, you know, we, we in academia, we face the same challenges that other people in other sectors do. We have our own incentive structures. They don't always incentivize us to um, produce diffuse, hard to measure public goods, right? It's just always a challenge. Um, you know, I've talked to a lot of people on this program just about they have these values, but then how do you make that? How do you make yourself legible on a CV? How do you make those activities measurable is something that then counts. And I think that's, that'll, that'll bring me to the last question I have for you about this specific work, which is, do you think that measurability plays a role here in determining what types of infrastructure projects get funded? I mean, so you gave this narrative about, okay, EPA has this, there's kind of an administrative mandate. We need to do this, it is a problem. So maybe there's some administrative legibility that's at stake here. We want to have, you know, report the right things to people. And I'm also thinking, okay, it's, it's maybe harder to measure these ideas of, well, you've said it's harder to measure resilience. It's harder to measure maybe social equity outcomes. And so do you think that's playing a role in deciding what gets funded or not? Because some of these things are maybe associated with more diffuse public benefits. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, I think that is very, very much so. Like, it is easier to model stormwater, you know, stormwater volumes captured, right, uh, than it is to measure what the social benefits are, or even things like air, air pollution, um, you know, mitigation, right? Um, it, that can be, I have found there's actually not as much work as you might think on actually monitoring how, you know, how much green infrastructure or vegetation can really reduce air pollution, right? Um, or improve air quality. So I think, yeah, I think that absolutely that's, that is part of the driver is that is measurability. And I think that, you know, obviously when it comes to even, you know, things like the ecosystem services provided by green infrastructure, right? The ones that are measurable are, you, you tend to see factored in a lot more. And I've heard like explicitly, um, decision makers, you know, say, okay, you know, when we're say designing a decision support tool, like, well, it's going to be really hard to defend including a, an environmental justice indicator in this, uh, you know, green infrastructure decision support tool, whereas um, it's easier to include, you know, land surface, a map of land surface temperatures. People aren't going to dispute that, right? Um, but the other one is a lot fuzzier and a lot a lot harder, but still super important. So it's, yeah, it's frustrating, but I, I think absolutely measurability is, is a big issue. And have you struggled with that in your, in the design of your own tools? Yeah, no, I mean, 
though a huge, I mean, I think the limited, the it, absolutely for every, I mean, honestly, for every indicator, it was very much constrained by data availability and, uh, you know, I've really struggled with how to, to measure them, but yes, some things more than others, right? Like so I include a social vulnerability index in there, the SOVI, right? But that's incredibly controversial. There's, you know, lots of very, you know, trenchant critiques of, of SOVI and I, I don't disagree with any of them, right? But on the other hand, it's like, well, there's, it's hard to figure out what else, you know, you can get, right? And I think there's, in yeah. designing these, there's always a tension between trying to get the most accurate, best indicator and to get something, right? Um, and, you know, if you, this is true with every single one, if you talk to someone who's an expert in social vulnerability, they could, you know, give you a, a really um, impressive takedown of, of Sobe. If you're talking, you know, I have a lot of colleagues who work on urban heat, right? They would tell you that land surface temperature is extremely problematic as an indicator of say the thermal environment, right? And, and who, who is more exposed to urban heat, right? Um, but then on the other hand, as you start to get further and say like, okay, but can you give me a, a data layer, right? That shows me relative exposure across the entire city or better yet for three or four cities, they're very quickly going to come to the conclusion that it's not, not possible, right? Uh, that right. they don't have a better, that that's probably the best that they could do. And then it's like, I think a question of like, okay, well, is it better than nothing, right? And I think this is what you always have to ask yourself when designing these kinds of things is like, is it telling us something that is like closer to the truth than we would have otherwise? And if, if it's not, then, then don't do it, right? And I think there, there might be cases where it's completely, complete, like, you know, it, it, it isn't giving you any information. It would be better to just, you know, I don't know, uh, talk to people in the city. Right. Um, but in many cases, you know, I think, okay, yes. Yeah. So, you know, as you, you start to have that discussion, yes, land surface temperature is probably correlated with, you know, pretty highly with these other kind of measures. Yes. It's not exactly, uh, you know, it's not the actual experienced temperature, but like, it's probably going to show you where are the hotter areas. Uh, and that's all you really need for this model. Right. So like, that's where I think sometimes it's good enough. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I totally agree with, uh, this idea or maybe like an observation that, okay, there's a smart person has created a trend, like written a trenchant critique of everything at this point. So it's like, that can't be the only guidepost if we want to do something. And I, I really love your answer, which is like, okay, is this better than nothing? Like if the counterfactual is just nothing, then like, is this a step in the right direction incrementally, despite the fact that like, mm -hmm. there's a really articulate PDF out there that says that we shouldn't do it. Yeah. I mean, I think I've, I, well, increasingly become okay with, with incremental solutions, even if it's also feels sometimes very frustrating and disheartening. Right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, okay. So to wrap things up, are there, could you talk just a bit about, you know, what you'd like to do next? I mean, in terms of green infrastructure, uh, resilience, is there a new, you know, are you going to start to talk to farmers in the next stage of your <laughs> um, career? I think I'm going to maybe urban farmers, but ah, okay. otherwise I have very, I have set very strict boundaries to focus only on cities, not for, not because I don't think other places are important, but just because I, I feel like I have too too many topics that I'm working on and too many things I'm interested in as it is, and so I had to bound it somewhere. And so I, I'm I'm an urban person, and I don't <laughs> I Fair don't enough. venture outside. Yeah. Um, except of course that I love like hiking and nature. Um, no, this is healthy. 
So, so yes, uh, but yes, this, I, so no, I will not be, be venturing out uh, beyond the city for my research. Um, in terms of what, what is, what I'll be doing next, I think, uh, well, you know, for probably the next year, the big project that I am working on is on heat planning um, or planning for extreme heat and thinking about what resilience in the context of, of uh, heat means. Um, so, so yeah, so I'm gonna be work, thinking about how we can, well, what are like, what does heat planning look like? So I'm developing a report. So this is work that I'm mainly collaborating with Lad Keith at the University of Arizona on, um, as well as some other folks too. Um, we're doing some work with the American Planning Association. So we're developing a report specifically that will be the first report uh, for the APA on like guidance on heat planning. Um, so really trying to think through what that is because actually what we found, so we, we did a, a literature review on heat planning recently that we published. And um, what we found is there's a lot of work on like modeling um, urban heat islands and um, quite a bit on like design and how it relates to, to heat, but actually very little on heat governance. And I think in comparison to other hazards like flood, um, you know, flood hazards, heat is really, underdeveloped, like both in terms of, of scholarship, but also in practice, right? We don't have the same sort of regulatory structure or institutions in place for managing heat um, that we do for, for other hazards, but we know that it is like an increasing challenge and it is the deadliest um, climate or weather related hazard in the US. Um, so, so yeah, so I think it's important to think about, um, obviously, I've thought a lot more about it since moving to Arizona <laughs> from Michigan. Um, I bet, yeah. Because it is hot here, uh, I can attest. Um, and just a lot, I mean, that's like the glib answer, but like, I, I can also attest that like a lot of my, a lot of my colleagues are, you know, and are working on heat. And so I've learned a lot from them. And I, um, yeah, I've just really come to, been convinced that it's, you know, an area that needs a lot more work. So, so doing that, and we're also really thinking about how, um, looking at how cities are addressing heat in their plans and how they can do that in a more integrated way. So I've been thinking like more broadly. So I also have a project that I've been working on the last couple of years on flood planning as well, flood resilience planning. And that has been a lot about thinking how flooding is addressed or, or not addressed in sort of integrated ways across different city plans. So thinking about all of the different plans that communities develop, um, you know, whether it's a general plan or, some sort of small neighborhood plans, economic development plans, infrastructure plans, hazard mitigation or climate plans. Um, how, how do the different policies and strategies that they have in them actually like connect? Like spatially, where are they, um, where are they focusing? Um, are they contradictory, right? And how can you actually like, how can you research that and study that? And obviously the ultimate goal is that you <laughs> would create plans that are um, more synergistic. Mm -hmm. So, so we've been doing that with flooding um, and in the future, I'll be doing that with heat as well. Okay, so you're covering the elements, flooding and heat. <laughs> yes. Okay, very cool. Yeah, I mean, it's um, the, I mean, this seems pretty like directly connected to climate change in both cases. Yeah, I think every, well, I, I you know, I have long, I mean, I, going into my PhD, I was really interested in working on urban climate governance and that hasn't changed. Um, I think all of my work is very closely connected to, to climate change, right? Okay, fair enough. Uh, well, very cool, Sarah. 
Um, I wish you the best of luck with that. It sounds really fascinating. Um, are there any final topics or points that you'd like to make or cover before we wrap up? I don't think so. This was a fun conversation. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Incommon Podcast has been associated with the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC, and the International Journal of the Commons, or IJC, for the last several months now. In addition to developing our relationships with each of these organizations, we have been expanding our own team in the last month or so. We now have an official blog editor, Pranita Mudliar, an assistant professor of environmental studies and science from Ithaca College. Moving forward, we plan on publishing a more regular series of blog posts that will complement our mostly weekly podcast episodes. You can access each of our blog posts at our website, incomingpodcast.org.